This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome to Talking TV. I'm Jake Cantor. On the show this week, diversity's back on the agenda following a government-led industry roundtable last week. Plus, we'll ask why ITV's returning to the pay TV game with new drama channel ITV Encore. Also hoping for a standing ovation will be John Plowman, who joins us at Talking TV Towers to chat about Inside Number 9, BBC Two's latest darkly comic yarn from the creators of The League of Gentlemen. And ending the show, we have a couple of previews, including births, deaths and marriages, ITV's access piece on old Marylebone Town Hall from the indie behind Long Lost Family. You'd be mad to go anywhere. With me in the studio are Faraz Osman, the creative director of multi-platform indie Lemonade Money. Good to have you back, Faraz. Happy New Year. Well, thank you. Happy New Year to you. Are, you. are we still allowed to say that? It's still January. Yeah. At time of recording. People really get riled when I say it to them sometimes. Should we say Happy Valentine's Day? (laughs) We'll save that for February. (laughs) Also in the studio is Lisa Campbell. And it's a sad day because this will be her last appearance in her guise as broadcast editor. I know. I'm stifling the sobs here. I have to say, I'm going to miss you, Jake. I miss all the team. Is it sinking in yet? It is. Yes. I do do feel quite emotional. I'm really delighted that Chris Curtis is going to be taking over from me, my my deputy, my right-hand man, my rock. Um, So yes, I I think he'll do a fantastic job. So I think there's good times ahead for for everyone. We hope so. And just before we get started on our first piece of news this week, a bit of breaking news reports that all three media are going to be bought by uh, Fremantle Media. This would be huge. It, It sounds as though it's going to go ahead. I mean, we're certainly not getting any forceful denials at this stage, but we will be doing more on broadcast now. You know, we're, we're going to expect a lot more consolidation in the indie sector going forward. This this is an example. I mean, across media businesses generally, and we've seen Publicis and Omnicom, businesses are just having to scale up and we'll, we'll definitely see more. Yeah, and all three have been on the hunt for a buyer for some time, haven't they? So yeah, it's, it's no massive surprise, I guess. No. Well, one of the reasons we're going to miss you, Lisa, is because of your ability to sneak into events like you did last week. Um, You attended a diversity roundtable chaired by Culture Minister Ed Vasey. Yes, strictly no press, but I I sneaked in there. (laughs) Um, Basically on the back of of the campaigning work that we've been doing really on broadcast on Expert Women and the Diversify conference we held in November. But Ed Vasey really encouraged a sort of informal approach to to this, even though we're in very formal surroundings in the House of Commons. But there were about 40 people from film, TV and theatre. There were sort of diversity champions, business leaders, industry leaders. We had Danny Cohen from BBC, Sophie Turner-Lang from Sky. Everybody was in agreement. We haven't monitored diversity well enough. Nobody is held to account. The numbers are terrible. It's time to stop talking and it's time to act Ed Vasey was very much on board with with the fact that, yes, that there needs to be much greater accountability. And he said he feels that government has a role to play here. What was interesting this week as well is the Creative Diversity Network, which which all the, the major broadcasters are members of. They've announced a new monitoring system. So it might sound incredible, but we actually don't know who makes TV programmes and who's on screen. There's just snapshots and an ad hoc survey. So creative skill sets survey into the workforce is done every two years just for one day. Broadcasters do their own individual. So they have their own benchmarks and their own their own. They, they have their own way of collating the data, but there's no industry benchmark. So there's no way you can compare. There's no way you can see progress or share best practice. So I think this new system, um, Silver Mouse, 
could be a real landmark. It could be a real game changer, which makes us see just what is going on. People will have to be more accountable because because it's transparent in this way. Yeah. The Creative Diversity Network has been around for a long time. Why is it taking them so long to get to this point? Uh, it's a very good question. I think... The CDN pledge has existed for some time and, and indies have signed up to that as well. It doesn't have teeth and that's that's one of the issues. The CDN has just been a bit um, low profile. I'm not toothless. really sure. <laughs> toothless, exactly. Uh, I don't think people's hearts have, have been in it. I think, I think the industry is now under political pressure. I mean, we've had Maria Miller write to broadcasters. We've had Harriet Harman about, about older women. You know, and now Ed Vasey is on the case. And the broadcast um, campaign. And the broadcast campaign, yes. And that was referred to at, at the round table. You know, the government is having a big push this year with the Great Britain campaign promoting this fantastic industry we've got. It's worth £8 million per hour to the UK economy. They want to grow that. And they're really you know, honing in on its global reputation. And then, of course, it's really embarrassing when high-profile black British actors like David Harewood are going and talking to the press about the lack of opportunities here and how you have to escape to the States to get work. Faraz, this all sounds like it's moving in the right direction. There's always or a is it too, too little too late? There is a little bit of a groan every time a diversity subject comes up because it feels like we have been speaking about it since television started and it just continues. I mean, full disclosure, I, I was on the mentoring scheme for CDN. I started on it when, I think, in the first year or the second year that CDN started up. And the tell, mentoring us, scheme, tell us about your experience then. Well, I mean, the mentoring scheme for me is, has been excellent for the simple reason that I've met some really interesting and talented people from diverse backgrounds and... And I think that that's a really important thing to state, that there is great talent that's around. It just needs to be untapped. But the problem with this issue is, and, you know, obviously I, I have vested interest as a as a British Pakistani Indian man. And it's it's been something that I've, you know, been around as a result of that, because there I do think there are a lack of people from diverse backgrounds within the industry. But it is, it's twofold. It comes from the entry level, as in there are not enough people coming in. And then it comes all the way up to the senior level, where there are not enough opportunities for people, once they are in, to continue their careers right right through to, to the top levels. And that's something that isn't easy to solve with one round table or, a, or another diversity pledge. It's, it's something that's systematic, that, that has to be looked at. And I, I hope that... Is monitoring the answer then, do you think? Monitoring is is part of the answer. There is no, I don't think there is one one answer here. And I think that we also have to look at the fact that this industry is changing significantly. And I think what you're seeing in, in this year is a huge rapid expansion in other ways of getting into this industry. There are incredible grounds being made online where people are just posting and posting their own things and starting up their own networks. Things like Grime Daily, things like SBTV are getting millions and millions of hits. And people are now going... TV's not for me. Is there other ways that I can get into this route and, and what's happening? I think some, what Simone said at the diversity event that Broadcast held is, is absolutely correct. I think that there's been too long for people waiting for opportunities and, and people who are really hungry are making their own and are being successful at it. Yeah. I think we'll see more of that and hopefully that will help everybody sit up and take notice. Yeah, that was Simone Pennant from the TV collective. You know, it's this idea that I think TV is actually better at getting new entrants in, but then it just spits them out the other end and people are absolutely sick to death of it by now. Plenty more to chew on for the broadcasters there. Uh, also this week, ITV Unveil plans to launch its first new channel in eight years, a pay TV service on Sky showcasing the best of its recent drama. ITV Encore launches over the summer and as well as airing shows such as Vera, it will order 
popular original content with funding that will be over and above ITV's existing commissioning budget. Uh, the reason for the move? Well, it's all part of ITV's transformation strategy to secure half of its revenue from sources other than traditional advertising by 2015. Uh, Faraz, this is sensible stuff, right? Yes. <laughs> if, 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 the short answer is, is yes. Um, the more win- shop windows we have for great British dramas and, and productions, the better. I think that there's something interesting going on around what Sky's doing. And, and obviously, you know, this comes back to the whole Netflix question and what's happening in that space around pay TV. The two things that, that kind of pop up in my head are, are, one, the identity of all of ITV's different brands now. Um, how does this relate to what ITV4 is doing? To me, it's starting to become a little bit muddy about what each brand stands for and what each each of them does. Yeah. Do, do, um, sorry, do you mean ITV3, the, the drama channel? I think, yeah. that, <laughs> yeah. that, I think that kind of proves the point. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit tricky to kind of figure out, okay, if I go to this channel, what does it look like? I think it's You're not, not sure what all the, stand, the channels stand for? I, I, I think yeah. it's not helped by the fact that the BBC standards of channels are, are different. So obviously BBC3 is, is a youth-skewing channel and on ITV it's a older drama channel yeah um and so i think my own perspective is that i'm getting a little bit confused about what stands for what and then once this comes in the name encore to me suggests that it's kind of classic stuff from from yesteryear and it sounds like it's new dramas as well yeah so it will be so so it's that's a little bit confusing from a branding perspective but i'm sure that that just takes a little bit of time this is a new announcement and and it just needs to get ingrained into into what people are watching when they're, they're flicking their digi boxes. But I think that what's interesting is coming down to advertisers. And are we going to continue to see dramas that are interrupted every 15 minutes for adverts for bleach and toilet paper and car insurance, breaking up narratives when, when you look at what's going on on Netflix and, and even on Sky Movies, when people can sit down and watch a narrative from beginning to end without interruption, which I think audiences are hungry for, particularly in drama. Lisa, is ITV a bit late to the party or is this a, a good move? I think it's a sensible move because if you look at the windowing, really, because on ITV4, their long running series are sort of Lewis and Endeavour and Morse and things. With this, it's going to be more of the two part, three part dramas that you would normally have to wait quite a significant time before you could repeat those on that channel. Those sort of sort of one offs can then sit on this channel. They have a home. They have yeah. a home and, and, and it's earlier. And there are some fantastic things that can sometimes get a bit lost because they are only two or three parts. I mean, things like Mrs. Biggs, which was, you know, has really helped, you know, make Sheridan Smith. It was fantastic. And, and uh, Lucan and, and the town. I think it's those sorts of things will will be able to be promoted much more and, and get a get a second chance, really. Good news for drama producers if there's a bit more money flying around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we'll wait to hear. I mean, I, I heard that there was actually going to be quite a small budget on, on this, but, uh, you <laughs> so know, not they so always, <laughs> well, you know, you you have to co-produce to make dramas these days anyway. Putting don't a damper you, so. on things here, Lisa. <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> All right, well, we'll, we'll, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on that note, we'll move on. Uh, lastly, in the news this week, a new feature we're introducing called Commission of the Fortnight, because there's just not enough awards in the television business these days. The inaugural winner of this accolade is ITV2 for taking Gogglebox Entertainment format Release the Hounds to a full six-part series. A Halloween pilot fronted by Reggie Yates last year challenged three contestants to enter a forest at dusk where they endured a series of spooky challenges in order to win cash prizes. The pilot drew 378,000 viewers and was released on YouTube by Sony Pictures Television to generate some international hype. Faraz, Sony's uh, Wayne Garvey described it as the most exciting new show he's been involved with since the launch of Dragon's Den. Does it deserve the hype, do you think? Um, I'm not entirely sure about the title. It sounds it sounds like another dog training program. What I would say is it's one of these shows that, as a producer, 
you look at and you go, why didn't I come up with that? And that's one of the most frustrating things when, when a great commission comes about with a great idea and you, you look at yourself and you kind of go, that's obvious. Yeah. Horror and, and scare, people enjoy being scared. People enjoy horror. And if you look at what all the theme parks around the country are doing um, with their Halloween nights, they're, they're putting on special events for people to go and get frightened and, you know, and pay for the privilege. And you've um, got the zombie apps as well. And exactly. And, you've, and, and it's growing as well. Yeah. I mean, we, you've got things like Zombie Run around London where people are paying to do 10K runs and being chased after by by zombies and mm. you know this is a growing market and it's it's a really smart really smart creative idea i think what there was really good engagement online as well twitter responded well me. it feels young skewing it feels it feels like a really strong piece that kind of changes the, the way that we look at, at entertainment and, and quiz show formats which i think i think it's a great idea um, i really like the work that matt and gogglebox are doing in that in that space and i think that i, I really hope that this is a success because actually to me, it looks like innovation, which I think is a good thing. Yeah. It goes back to your earlier point about things being able to prove themselves online, really. You know, that so, so the pilot, and as, as you say, it was really successful on YouTube. Um, and I just think new ideas and new talent and th- something that's a bit riskier can really prove itself online. And then the broadcaster will go, oh, OK, you know, we'll go ahead with it. And uh, Angela Jane tends to back winners, so... I'm sure it will be a successful series for ITV2. That's your news for this episode. Uh, Thanks to Faraz and Lisa for joining me. Next up, we take a journey into the darkly comic world of Inside Number 9. BBC Two's latest creation from Psychoville and League of Gentlemen writers Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton. The series of six self-contained episodes is described as an anthology of genuinely unexpected tales and stars a plethora of British comic talent. In the first episode alone, the likes of Tim Key and Catherine Parkinson get cosy in the confines of a bedroom wardrobe as part of an oddly sinister game of sardines. Before I introduce John Plowman, the executive producer for the BBC's in-house comedy unit, here's a taste of what you can expect. Oh, it's like the back room of Cinderella's at Wakefield. Has anyone got any poppers or lube? Stuart, you two know each other then, do you? Unfortunately, yes. They're partners. In what line? Uh, well, it used to be straight up and down, but not anymore. <laughs> I'm in IT. Congratulations, I'm in SHIT, because I got in late last night, didn't I? Stuart, you can do what you like, it doesn't bother me. Oh, I see. You're living together partners. Uh, yeah, we're queer, dear. Get used to it. Right, that's it. I can't stay here. Carl, please. It's true to behave. This party's not about you. It's about me and Jeremy, so pot out. Welcome, John. Thanks for joining us. That's all right. Uh, inside number nine feels like it's got ambition written through it. Is it. Has it been rewarding to be involved with? It's just wonderful to be working with Reese and Steve again. I looked after League of Gentlemen a long time ago, and then we did Psychoville. And at the end of Psychoville, well, we did two series of Psychoville, and we talked about doing a third one and then decided that maybe too many of the characters were dead. and Literally dead. Literally dead. (laughs) And then, yes, not not artistically dead. (laughs) And then I think recently having written a sort of long-form thing, i.e. a story told over 12 episodes, suddenly thought it would be fun to write something in which each half hour was discreet. And so it's a thing that used to be on television more, but isn't now, which is, you could say it's a sort of comedy Wednesday play or a comedy Tales of the Unexpected. Why do we see less of that sort of thing these days? um, Because controllers and perhaps the audience like the idea of following something the following week. And it's not that we're depriving them of that, because, of course, they can follow 
the next episode of of Inside Number Nine, in which Reese and Steve usually appear, and which have a sort of consistent tone. Although one of the joys of Reese and Steve is is how extraordinarily diverse the episodes are, and yet all written by the same people and starring in the same people. Yeah, uh, how tough is it to tell a rich story within 30 minutes? Well, I think it's very tough, and it's even tougher to tell six separate ones, which are very different in tone. So the first one, as you said, is, I think, 11 actors in a wardrobe playing sardines in a country house. The second one is an entirely... It's not quite fair to say it's a silent comedy. It's a half hour which has one line of dialogue in it, uh, which all takes place in a glass house at night. I mean, not a glass house, but a house that has lots of windows, into which two people are trying to get into to steal a painting. And it's an extraordinary piece. Uh, it takes place, as it were, in, in real time. And there's no dialogue because there can't be any dialogue, because two people trying to break into a house, steal a painting, while there are people still in the house, means that dialogue just wouldn't be appropriate. And where does it rank among things that you've produced previously? I think it's it's really up there. I think it's one of the best pieces of television you'll see. Because of its year. ambition? and uh, Because of its ambition, but also because it brings it off. I mean, obviously, I'm the exec producer, so I would say that. But I, I really <laughs> do think it does. You know, a lot of television feels similar to a lot of other television. This doesn't feel like a lot of television was that your intention from, from the outside? Partly. I mean, it was partly to make six really interesting things. And so the ambition was quite high, and we're blessed with Reese and Steve, who I think are wildly sort of underpraised as, as comedy genii, if that's the proper plural. We were being ambitious, but I hope we brought it off. And the big mistake we made was simply a sort of one to do with time and geography, which is if you're going to make a half hour which takes place in real time, entirely in the dark, in one location. A, a glass house is tricky to film without getting reflections. B, filming in July when it gets dark at half past nine and gets lighter at five-ish limits the amount of time you can film. So you were filming all night then? We were filming all night. (laughs) And did you do the whole episode in in one evening? No, no, no. That would have been quite Quite tough. We did it over five days. But even so, five days to do... A rather polished half hour of television. Yeah. Is uh, it's, I mean, generally, it's been quite a long gestation for this. For well, this it's not not intentionally, really. It was just partly Stephen Reese's availability. Steve was doing Whitechapel. And, and Reese is also doing an ITV and drama. Benidorm and Reese is doing a drama. So we did it in two blocks of three. The two, I mean, we made the last lot. September, October the last year. So it hasn't actually been that long a gestation period. It's just that three of them sat in the fridge for a bit. And Reese took to Twitter uh, this week to say that there's more on the way. Is, is there's more right? on the way. I can confirm it has been recommissioned even before the first episode's gone out. So that may tell you, uh, that may be a mark of its uh, quality. Uh, clearly, Janice, I hope it is. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so you, I mean, you, you always had a deal in place with them, didn't you, to do with two, Reese and Steve to do two of their next series? Um, is that right? Or uh, no, the BBC never does. Sort of, it's never that generous. Uh, <laughs> it, the w- initial plan was that there would be this series of Inside Number Nine, and then there might be something else. And the boys are also doing other things for other broadcasters, and indeed for the BBC. And so, 
it was just a question of what was what, if that makes sense. So they feel like they've got six more stories to tell. Yes, exactly. Well, we look forward to seeing it. While we've got you, John, we can't not talk about W1A. Yes, we could. We we, We could not talk about (laughs) The spiritual successor to 2012, uh, which is, of course, set at the BBC. Why spiritual? Uh, it seems to me the BBC's been low to, to say it's a, a direct successor. Of, oh, of I see. Well, it's yeah. only a di- direct successor because you may or may not have noticed, but the Olympics has already happened. <laughs> it's and done. So, <laughs> it's done. There's nothing we can do about that. So it's not that we've been holding out on the press or anything. It's just seriously, the Olympics has happened. So we couldn't really do any more in 2012. And indeed, we'd sort of all thought, well, you know, if you do a show that has a ticking clock and the clock gets to midnight, as it were, that's it. And then we sort of, there was a bit of, there were people saying, wouldn't it be nice to do a bit more? Those characters were very good and we were very lucky and won a BAFTA for 2012. And so we began to sort of talk about, did it have any future life? And John Morton and I and, and Mark Freeland and various people talked about places it might happen and the BBC... Did you think about other big construction projects? Well, you know, you sort of think, well, where would... If the last thing on your CV is organise the Olympic Games, what's your next job? Some people apparently spend their lives going round the world just organising Olympic Games. But it didn't feel like Hugh's character was was that. So he had to go somewhere else, as it were. So how did you arrive at the BBC? By car and tube. (laughs) And creatively, <laughs> you know, look, John Morton. I'm so blessed at the moment because he he really is a fantastic writer. It's really interesting to read John's scripts because every word is there. Those who remember 2012, it may have felt like there were odd bits which looked like improvisation. They were worked on very very hard they? to look like. It. I mean, John is. You have Ridiculous. to find the rhythm of what John's written in order to find the comedy in it. I'm not saying there's no comedy yet. What I'm saying is, you know, you have to sort of key into that. And so it takes a while to write and you've got to find the right sort of organisation. And the BBC felt like the sort of big organisation where somebody like Ian Fletcher would pitch up. Yeah, definitely. I mean, did it take a bit of convincing internally? Do you know, it didn't, it took almost none. <laughs> that sounds terrible. But I think people were very happy with 2012 and so thought, oh, hooray, we can, we can have some So more. they seized upon it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it never quite happens quite like that, but yes. <laughs> and you've said quite clearly that none of the characters are going to be based on current executives at the BBC. That's or, true. It, or, it's or indeed a, former executives. Again, rather like Sebastian Coe, I know, popped up for about two seconds. And in the same way, there's a, there's a character who's called Tony, uh, who we hear about, who appears to be the director general of the BBC, though we're not actually saying he's called Tony Hall. A, a sort of uh, spiritual director general, he doesn't maybe. ever appear. He d- well, it, so far. <laughs> and we're still filming it, I should say. So. Do you think you can get Tony uh, involved? It, uh, he may or may not be involved. Uh, he, <laughs> But in the same way that 2012 had, had a character called Sebastian Coe, this has a character called Tony Hall, but otherwise we are in what John likes to call a parallel universe. Have you asked him or is uh, Tony Hall to... Um, we told uh, him what the character's job was and asked very nicely if it were possible that a, that character's job could not be created in real life during the life of the series. And he said yes. 
Okay. So he might appear, it sounds like. No, 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 no. No, you're misunderstanding. No. It's like Ian's job yeah. is head of values. I see. There isn't a head of values at the BBC. Yeah. There are various people whose job is maybe covers some of that remit, but the, the, we just didn't want to avoid a job title that was yeah. actually going to be created. Fantastic. Well, look, we are really looking forward to seeing it, and thank you for joining and us And you today. also get the return of Siobhan Sharp and Perfect Curve in, of course, in W1. Which is a lot of people's favourite character. Um, I couldn't possibly come <laughs> We look forward to your other show, Inside Number 9, launches on BBC Two on the 5th of February at 10pm. Thanks for coming in and joining us today. Not at all. Lisa and Faraz are back with me to get stuck into some previews. We'll start with Births, Deaths and Marriages, ITV's newest factual series from wall-to-wall television. The two-part observational documentary opens the doors to Old Marylebone Town Hall, following 21 registrars as they handle up to 30 births and death registrations and 14 marriage ceremonies in a single day. The show also focuses on the people marking these important moments. Here's one such couple preparing to exchange vows in the same building where Paul McCartney got hitched. I was very young when I got married and I hadn't met anybody in the 20 years that I've been divorced that I could remotely say that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with or commit to a marriage. But I just felt like that with Bob. He was very special. There has actually been any formal engagement, has there? Uh, not that I can remember, anyway. Not formal, but when you bought me this ring, I did put it on my engagement finger, so... Oh, right. It was kind of like that for me. If you didn't really want to do something, you wouldn't do it. There you go. Lisa, do you want to get us going on this one? True to to wall to wall tradition, they you know love to make us sit there with a box of tissues snivelling away, <laughs> don't they? It's so emotional at times, and uh, but you know humorous as well. I mean, I love the gay registrar, and he he says something about you know he's had a life partner, Tommy, Tommy, who's, yeah. who's had a you know civil partnership for fourteen years, which in gay years is forever. You know? Oh no, that was the other gay registrar. Oh, okay. <laughs> there, were, there were two of <laughs> them, two, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so, so you've got the humour and you've got you've got the emotion as well. There's a but. <laughs> there is a but. Um, I sensed it coming. Yes, I think what I'm not so keen on is the style. It just feels like every other style of obdoc that's on at the moment. And I, I felt I could be I could have been watching a BBC Two observational doc. I could have been watching Channel Four. The music. Is, is exactly the same. It's as though they've got the same CD. The plinky-plonky plinky music. plinky yeah. And even the way that the contributors, the way the framing, you know, they look straight to camera, talking straight to the viewer. So many things, it just feels like everything you've seen before. I echo what Lisa's saying. I think that there's a layer that was missing. And bizarrely, I thought the layer was heart. It felt like it actually missed a little bit of of tender love and care when it came to the production of it. And I think that that, that was a little bit disappointing. It, it did kind of feel like it was phoned in slightly, which I, I think is a real shame because I think that there was there was an, uh, there was an opportunity to do something Scathing. great here. It, <laughs> slightly. I mean, it is very watchable. You you do kind of get rewarded if you stay with it. The characters get more drawn as you, as you go along. But there's a there's a real feeling that this could have been so much more that they, they could have started playing and toying with the idea of how do we create a format of, of how these things are, are registered. It's like, one of the things that kept coming to my mind was, if this was my wedding, is this how I would want it to be filmed? And yeah. you just kind of wanted something extra. What's the answer to that question? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you had this, you had, like Lisa's right, you had this kind of straight down the lens, talking heads, followed by some shaky obstop cam, which we've seen so many times before. 
And it just ends up getting lost in, in everything else that's on television at the moment, where actually you could have done something really interesting in how you present that. Everyone's looking for the, the warm bath. You know, commissioners say that, that that's what they want and that's what viewers want. I just felt a bit manipulated, as though I was given a warm bath with loads of extra radox, you know. I just <laughs> <laughs> the, the soap handed to you. Yeah. <laughs> It's a funny one and will be difficult to call, I think. And they've only done two parts and the the town hall is shutting down for two years for refurbishment now. So if it's successful, there'll be (laughs) be a a bit bit of a quandary because they won't be able to film anymore. So we'll sort of watch this space. Uh, We'll move on to our second show this week. It's uh, Jarmay, Private Schoolgirl, BBC Three's latest import from Australian comedian Chris Lilly. The six-part series focuses on Lily's bitchy Summer Heights High school girl character who has big plans for her final three months as Queen Bee of Hilford Girls Grammar. As well as bidding to win a prestigious medal for Best Girl in Year 12 and the heart of new boy Mitchell, Jarmay is also learning to drive. Here she is failing to get to grips with her mum's BMW. Madison and Oliver are staying over, so thanks. Um, what do I do? You press the button Jamie. and you got to have the key in first. So okay. Yeah, make sure you Shut up, Shut up. I know what I'm doing. Jamie, you have to drop yeah. the card. Yeah. You have to and focus you put your now. This is because I'm not the indicator. Well, why do they put it on the same fucking yeah, card? Yeah, you got the window. I know, it's so annoying. Jamie, let's Okay, I'm going. Drive. Jamie, have you checked your blind spot? Why is it not going? Because the handbrake is still on. Well, take the fucking handbrake off. I told you to take it off before I get in. It's annoying. For as you're chuckling away, you're a massive Lily fan, aren't you? I can't get enough of him. I think that the, his ability to draw characters that are believable and ridiculous at exactly the same time is is exceptional. I was a little bit disappointed with Angry Boys, which was the the follow up to Summer Heights High, which didn't I don't think translated as well internationally as, as Summer Heights High did. And I think it's a real treat that we're getting to come back to this character, which was easily one of the best in in that series. It's interesting you picked that clip because that's that I found that a really stressful clip. You really <laughs> felt like you were in the car. It was stressful. It, it, it's and but but the um but but it's very watchable and you really do think that that's a character that could exist in real life. I think it's a credit to to Chris and his ability of being a nearly forty year old man to to play a seventeen year old teenage girl. He's it's, utterly it's, convincing. By yeah, the end of the you episode, forget, you just yeah, forget he's absolutely. a bloke. <laughs> you forget he's a bloke. You forget that he's forty. You forget that those aren't his friends. You forget that he doesn't live there. It's it just feels like a completely natural character that you're seeing it's as if it's like an MTV kind of my super sweet 16 character um it could have easily been been on that channel as a documentary it it just feels that believable and i think that's a credit to both him and his talent and also the supporting cast um who could have very easily fallen in the trap of of trying to be comic characters themselves but they they play it completely straight and it makes that world Completely believable. Uh, I think it's great. I think it's very quiche. <laughs> Was it quiche for you, Lisa? I should say yeah. that quiche is, uh, is their sort of word for hot. Yes. It's hotter than hot, isn't it? Yeah. I'm a massive fan as well. I loved Summer Heights High. It was one of the best things on TV. Um, as you say, she's a great character. The problem for me is, can this be sustained, yeah. really? Because start to feel a bit one-dimensional. And I think what was great about Summer Heights High, she sort of felt utter bitch but there's a sort of naivety and sort of vulnerability insecurity or something that that she's likable in this she's just hateful and you kind of want something awful to happen to her yeah. and you know I want to feel a bit of a bit more sort of pathos I think to, towards her and, and may, maybe you do as, as it goes on but I do think 
I loved the mix of characters in Summer Heights High. I don't know if, you know, that car scene was intense. You know? <laughs> and I think the rest of it feels very intense with, with just her, but um, but still a fan and I'll, I'll still watch it. All what the about end. the production values? You, you do feel like something's coming. It, it, there is a really nice little pacing of it that you feel like, I mean, I already want to watch the next episode because I think that there's a disaster on the way. Oh, I can, have watched the next you, episode. You can see that that's, <laughs> that's coming. No, no spoilers. <laughs> you can see that's coming along it the It does horizon. get more ridiculous in the second episode. It, it, more outlandish, more in your face. But I, th- I think I think that Lisa's right. There's a with Summer Heights High. The reason it was so great is because there's one guy playing so many characters, and yet it feels like a, a huge ensemble cast. And you don't get that here. He is only playing one character. You kind of wish that Mr. G would kind of pop up in the background somewhere. <laughs> yeah, you, you you're left wanting a little bit for that. And I think it's going to be interesting to see if he succumbs to that, or if he's a, if he's able to to take this one character and and explode it into into something something in it on its own right but it looks great and it's got that that right tone and feeling of of being comedy documentary more 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 please i think he's making more isn't he he's, he's doing jonah as a as a oh, spin-off really? character I, I believe that's that's in development yeah oh wow so an exclusive mm. for talking tv is that lisa <laughs> no <laughs> it's on the internet <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much guys uh Jame, private school girl is produced by australia's princess productions and gets its bbc3 debut on the 6th of february at 10 p.m I'm afraid we've run out of time this week. My final thanks to Lisa and Faraz, as well as to John Plowman for popping in to talk about Inside Number 9. We're bucking the fortnightly trend with a special episode next week as we catch up with some of the winners at the Glitter Festooned Broadcast Awards 2014. So please don't miss that. Uh, You've been listening to Talking TV. My name's Jake Cantor. The producer was Matt Hill. And until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 